When Manisha Thakur pops into my virtual studio, she's wearing a blue plaid flannel shirt. She appears to be in a rustic cabin. There's lots of exposed wood. The space is open to the roof. And she's glowing. She's glowing, I learn, as she flips around her laptop to show me the view, because she's sitting in front of the window that looks out over a lake reflecting the mid-morning sun. Her cabin, indeed, her tiny, rustic cabin, is just a few steps from the cold, clear New England water. This isn't the first time I've spoken to Manisha. I'm fuzzy on the details, but I know that it was in Manhattan. I know we were dressed to impress. And I know that we were both living very different lives. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Manisha's new book, Money Zen, opens with these lines. If my experience is any guide, there are two paths to becoming part of a cult. One is a conscious decision. The other is a series of small, consistent, unconscious steps toward the flickering flame. Looking back, I can't say I wasn't warned. The cult in question is what Manisha calls the cult of never enough. I subconsciously found myself in this position was I was living my life to optimize an unbelievably sick and toxic equation. And that is my self-worth equals my net worth. Manisha worked in the financial services industry for over 25 years. She has an MBA from Harvard Business School. She's published previous books about financial literacy for women. She's been all over national media outlets like The Today Show, NPR, CNN, and Fast Company. She has all the institutional markers of success. And yet the woman sitting in front of me seems radical or perhaps radically whole. What happened in my case is multifaceted. It has to do with, you know, what I'll call small t personal traumas in the past. It has to do with societal cultural influences. It has to do even with evolutionary biological influences. It took several serious smacks in my head. I mean, there were these false starts before I finally realized what was going on. And two illnesses that were quite severe um, that required a fairly lengthy recovery period weren't enough. Getting divorced because I was never present in my marriage because I was always working wasn't enough. Realizing that the only holiday cards I received were from professional colleagues that all my friends had dropped me off the list wasn't enough. But what really did it for me was a very specific aha moment. I was in a meeting, a client, prospective client meeting, and the firm I was working with, we had a very unique way of showing the value that we brought to clients as wealth managers, financial 
life advisors. Um, and it involved a discovery process of spending a couple hours with the prospective client, really understanding their money history, their money origin, how the money they had came into their lives, how they felt about it, and then doing some rough projections showing if you spend this much earning this much um, in investment returns and live this long, you know, what are the various odds that you might have more years than dollars to fund them? And the prospective client uh, was very private and didn't want to share her financial details. And because it's such an intimate process talking about your money, I didn't want to come up with makeshift numbers. So I used my actual financials and the team interviewed me as if I were the, the potential client so she could see. And as we went through the story of my, you know, borrowing $2,000 from my parents when I got out of college for first month, last month rent, paying it back in less than a year and everything else I had, I earned myself, but I earned it at the cost of my life. I, I was a complete human doing, not a human being. And as we started the part of the process where we talked about values and what matters and, and, and what, what you want your life to look like, and I'm describing it, I'm starting to feel kind of nauseous because I can realize it looks nothing like my current life. And then the real aha moment was when we hit the numbers. We did the analysis on what I have, how much I spend, you know, how long I could live, and basically... I live a pretty simple life. And so, you know, I could live to over 100 and spend twice as much as I'm spending right now. And my odds of running out of money are exceptionally small, not because I'm, you know, I live in a private airplane world, but just because I live a kind of basic normal life. And tears just started gushing down my face when I realized that I had been chasing after financial security, amongst other things. And um, I'd completely missed that I had it because I was trapped in society's drumbeat that the answer to any problem we're having is do more, earn more, be more. Manisha's aha moment was the realization that she had been so caught up in the doing, working more, earning more, accomplishing more, that she completely missed the fact that she had what she wanted. One way philosophers might describe this is that Manisha had become alienated from herself. Philosopher Rahel Yegi describes the experience of alienation this way, quote, Someone who lies is not herself merely on the outside, whereas someone who is alienated is not herself also on the inside, and in a way that is not easy to understand. The alienated subject, she explains, relates more to the role she plays than to herself as the player of the role. There's a sense of impenetrability or inaccessibility to oneself. This can be deeply painful. This is deeply painful. And in many ways, this pain just feeds the cycle of alienation. It keeps us stuck in the cult of never enough. When I was in college, I had the 
amazing opportunity to spend my junior year abroad at Oxford. And I was on my way back to the States from England. And on the plane, I was reflecting on kind of what I'd learned, um, what I wanted my life to be like, what were some of the guiding principles. So I drew this triangle on a cocktail napkin. And at the top of the triangle, I wrote simplicity. And I wanted that really to be my guiding force. And at the bottom left-hand corner, I wrote small joys. And at the bottom right-hand corner, I wrote financial independence, equilateral triangle. And I, I felt like the small joys were what I would now call the emotional wealth. Um, and the financial independence is what I would now call financial health. And simplicity would be the way that I would find my enough, that would clear away all of the other clutter to um, live in accordance with who I am, who I want to be in the world, how I want to show up for others and show up for myself. But I realized as I was approaching 50 and not long after the uh, meeting with the client that made me just burst into tears, realizing how disconnected I had become from that triangle. And when I look back in retrospect, what happened is the triangle shifted upside down and it was lying the point. The bottom of the triangle was financial independence. I was so focused on achieving that that I had lost all connection to small joys and simplicity, which was the whole thing I wanted to, to do with any financial health I was able to build for myself. So this book for me was really a cry for help um, for myself and a desire to find a solution. This was my attempt at um, honestly fixing a very broken inside part of myself and when I finished writing it I realized oh my gosh my life has transformed so much and the things that I learned and tools that I put into practice are ones that people of a wide range of incomes ages professions could utilize and I thought I've got to put this out there Rahel Yegi's book, Alienation, is a consideration of alienation that doesn't rely on the idea of a true self buried beneath layers of conditioning and socialization. She sees value in alienation as a theory of critique and wants to reclaim it from essentialist or deterministic modes of understanding the self. The self isn't a singular and enduring phenomenon. Instead, the self is developed over time in relation to others through the roles we take on and make our own. Yegi explains that the problem is not that we play roles, but how we play them. For Yegi, playing a role becomes problematic when we lose our distance from that role. In other words, we start to over-identify with the role we're playing. We get so close to the role we play that we mistake the role for who we are. In the moment of realization that Manisha describes, she recognizes that she's mistaken the overachieving striver role for her identity. In a flash, she understands that she's gotten so close to that role 
that she couldn't see the way she's already achieved what the role was designed to achieve. The Manisha I see in her rustic lakeside cabin is a woman with distance from the roles she plays. She is radically whole, capable of playing the roles of successful author, engaging keynote speaker, or savvy financial planner, but not subsumed by them. If there's no difference between me and the role I play, it's no wonder I never quite feel like enough. No role is ever enough to make a radically whole being. But a radically whole being can play many different roles, keep them in perspective, and move through the world embodying enough. Or, as Yegi puts it, quote, The crucial question is not how many aspects of a successful life or how many features of an all-around developed personality someone realizes. The question is whether what she does leads her into a dead end or whether it offers her further possibilities for integrating and continuing her experiences, whether it limits her possibilities or opens up options for her. Getting out of the cult of never enough and finding some distance from the roles we play is key to another one of Manisha's core concepts from the book, understanding the difference between money worries and money problems. I think that the distinction between money problems and money worries is a really, really important one and one that is not discussed widely. In the book, I describe money problems as issues that can be resolved with financial solutions, tactical solutions. I'm drowning in credit card debt. I'm up to my earballs in student loan debt. I have no idea how much I can afford to spend on a house. These are problems with financial solutions. Money worries, as I describe it in the book, and I believe they are woefully under-discussed, they require emotional and intellectual solutions. And for years, I've been a a very um, vocal financial literacy advocate with a deep focus on women. My mom taught me from a very young age that money gives women voices and choices. And my dad, his whole career has been in finance. And so he taught me techniques to solve money problems. And so what I thought for a number of years is if I can just share this information, I really could change your life. But I realized that just because I give you answers to your financial problems, I'm not necessarily creating zen in your money life because you, if you're like the average human being on the planet, have money worries that stem from a multitude of other sources in your life. Without distance from our money problems, we learn to identify with our money problems. I might become the person with, say, loads of student debt or the person whose mortgage is underwater. I lose the ability to distinguish myself from the money problems I need to address. And as I lose any perspective on the way that factors outside my control exacerbate my money problems, things like wage stagnation, cost of living increases, high inflation, my identity collapses into a pile of money worries. 
and losing myself to my money problems makes it impossible to address my money worries. Money worries are issues that require emotional and intellectual solutions, issues that require me to probe the stories and systems that I exist within. Manisha writes that money worries, quote, beg for emotional and intellectual solutions because they are often not about our finances at all. Instead, they are a collective aching, a feeling that I will never measure up no matter how hard I try. The mistake I made was thinking that the way you solve that was purely through financial education and understanding the facts. And what I realized was that the emotions that we have about money come from so many different places. It's fairly widely acknowledged in sort of this new era of financial life planning that advisors are doing. There's now um, official financial life therapy um, designations that people can go through the coursework to get. Those tend to focus, again, though, on your money history, your your money story. But, But those tend to be the symptoms, not the root causes of this painful, toxic relationship that so many of us have with money and work. And until you understand those root causes, I've come to realize that it is exceptionally difficult, if not impossible, to shift your life into one where you are using your money from a place of financial health. But the focus is increasing your emotional wealth. I myself, at age 50, had woken up to realize that I had sacrificed pretty much all of my adult life to the altar of work. And I wanted to know, how the heck did this happen? And more importantly, what do I do about it? So many of us are stuck doing things we don't like to purchase stuff to make people we don't even really care about be impressed with us. Capitalism bombards us with the image of our dissatisfaction, writes critic Todd McGowan. Open a magazine, turn on the TV, scroll through TikTok, drive down the street. Bombardment is right. The image of our dissatisfaction is everywhere, along with, of course, the promise of its relief. All the while, we are longing for this vision of a life that often is so much more obtainable than we think if, if we just let go of the quest for more, more, more. And so to me, emotional wealth is all of the stuff that really speaks to your your soul. Sean and I often talk about pairing way down. We could figure out the bare minimum we need to live a rich life, as Ramit Sethi would say, and move to a cabin in the woods off the grid. 
I told Manisha that her rustic lakeside cabin is my idea of heaven. Now, there are reasons we haven't done this yet, but the list of reasons gets shorter every day. What I really want to spend my time doing to surround myself with, it's really affordable. Emotional wealth in my world is cheap, but inertia is real. Keeping on keeping on requires far less psychic energy than making a different choice. I didn't go to my grandmother's funeral because this is how sick my mindset was. I was in the peak of the, you know, big go-go part of my corporate career. I thought, well, Grand's dead. She's not going to know if I'm there. It just, it literally never occurred to me that funerals are about the survivors, to, to be there, to support each other. And, and you know, it was just, um, it, it, it's matching your beliefs with your actions. It's not that I truly didn't love my family. It's that I was caught in this trap of feeling like it was more important to keep working than to take the time out to go to a ritual that's been around for, you know, millennium because it fuels the human soul. And so that to me is emotional wealth. And it looks so different for everyone. I mean, for some people, it might be um, having time to learn to salsa or do Zumba. For other people, it may be um, having time to do uh, volunteer work at a shelter for battered women. For other people, it may be time to go have spa days once in a while. Um, and for others, it may be being home when your kids get back from school. I mean, there's no one answer or one specific item um, or list of items that goes into that bucket. But the overarching umbrella is doesn't make your heart sing. Is it in line with your values and the way you want to live your life and what makes you happy? Todd McGowan, the critic I mentioned a bit ago, argues that our inertia, our desire for more, is baked into the capitalist system. The growth of the economy is contingent on our dissatisfaction because our dissatisfaction leads to consumption. For McGowan, the essence of capitalism is accumulation. We imagine that there is something out there that we could acquire to ultimately satisfy our desire. Quote, the object that would quench our desire and allow us to put an end to the relentless yearning to accumulate. And in a line that I take as a personal attack, McGowan writes that the psychic toll capitalism takes on us infects even those who believe that they have opted out of the system and live off the grid. He writes, when we achieve the pinnacle of success, we seek out a way to return loss into our existence by imagining a new challenge or embarking on a new project. McGowan's work on the nature of desire in capitalism and Yegi's work on alienation help us recognize the ways we end up part of the cult of never enough. We're not broken and we're not stupid. We've been indoctrinated into a system that achieves this predictable result. Knowing that, there's a profound hope 
of escape. We might not be able to escape the socio-political systems that structure the world at large, but by knowing they exist, we can be more intentional about how we move through them. The part of the book that I enjoyed writing the most was the deconstruction part, as you would call it. It was understanding what are the various external systemic factors um, that can lead someone to have such a toxic relationship with work and money and accomplishments and success such that it sucks the air out of your life. And what I noticed in my own self, I mean, it, it wasn't some shocking revelation that I was a workaholic and it, you know, hello, when you work seven days a week and you have no hobbies and you've lost all of your friends, um, something's going on. But the the thing is, I tried to do all of the stuff that you read in the self-helpy books, right? I tried to meditate. I, I tried to have a gratitude journal. I tried to walk outside in my barefoot so I could nature bathe on grass. And you know what? None of it helped. It was like a short, I mean, they're all good tools, but they're band-aids. There was something bigger, which is what needed to be deconstructed, um, which broke me and I think is breaking so many other people. And you don't get broken in the same way. We all get broken in different ways. And so what's important is understanding the different categories of things that could break us or cause us to drive ourselves in ways that are contrary to what we really want um, or what we really believe in. And so that's why I actually think the first half of the book describing the problem is the most powerful part of the book. To fix this problem, you have to go through a big chunk of unraveling the problem. And that's why I focus so much on how did we get here? Because once you understand that, the steps out of it, I don't want to say are not rocket science, but they're things that we've heard before. The reasons they've not worked before is because we haven't done all of the unpeeling and introspection and critical thinking about the the broader culture in which we're um, having these issues. There's a reason that my book follows the same structure. Deconstruction of our beliefs about success, work, money, and even who deserves what is critical to our ability to construct healthier, more satisfying lives. If we want out of the cult of never enough, we have to do the work to understand why we started to believe we weren't enough in the first place. Huge thanks to Manisha Takor for jamming with me about financial health and emotional wealth. Pick up her new book, Money Zen, Escape the Cult of Never Enough and Reclaim Your Life at your local independent bookseller on bookshop.org or wherever you buy books. And listen again on Monday for Manisha's thoughts on counterfeit culture. And if you're a coach, manager, trainer, or guide of any kind, I'd love to help you incorporate this deconstruction work into your own practice. 
Starting in September, I'm leading a 12-week certificate program called Work in Practice. You'll learn how to spot the social, political, and economic systems that make change hard. So if you work closely with people who want to work differently and intentionally design a more satisfying work-life existence, check out Work in Practice at workinpractice.life. That's workinpractice.life. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer, and Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutenaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell.